Nehemiah chapter 5. Before I begin, let me open in prayer as we study God's Word together. Father, I want to thank you for the power of the truth of your word. Your word says that when we know the truth, it will set us free. Today, God, we want freedom. Father, for many of us, we are just so caught up in the stuff and the things going on and the busyness of our life. And we are just asking you, God, that you would speak truth to our hearts. Give us the right focus that we need. And Father, I pray where we need freedom, give that freedom. But Lord, I pray... Pour this sense of purpose and of destiny and of the truths of your word into our hearts. And with that truth, set us free and do all of the good things of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1973. Many of you recognize that date. I was alive during that year. I was 12 years old, actually. That was the year that the Supreme Court declared that they were God. That's right. When Roe v. Wade passed, they made the decision to legalize abortion. I mean, oh my goodness. Why do I say that the Supreme Court made the decision that they were God? Many today believe that abortion should be a litmus test for politicians. I think there's a lot of confusion in this. Some people say that, well, that is the right of women to make those types of decisions. Many would say, you know what, I don't believe that abortion is right, but who am I to impose that on others? Well, let me tell you why others, and I I myself, believe that that should be a litmus test for politicians. The Bible says in the very first chapter of of Genesis that we are all made in the image of God. And if we are made in the image of God, there are certain rights that he has created us with. Now, notice I'm saying created and not born with. We were created by God with certain human rights. It is the role of government to protect those rights. Whatever those rights may be, we have in our Declaration of Independence, it says this. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, created, not born, created equal, and that, and that they are endowed by their creator, not just God, but their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Biblically, then, God created us with human rights, and therefore, we are all equal. The challenge, then, is who endows us with these rights? Not when we are born, but when we are created, that is, in the womb. When God creates that baby in the womb, God is the one who endows them with human rights. So here is the challenge. If that child, the unborn child, has rights, it is absolutely no different to take the life of that child before birth than it is after birth, or a month after, or a year after, or 12 years after. 
I've heard some parents say that when my kids are teenagers, maybe that's when we should leave. No, I'm not going to go there. But the truth is, you know, we, we can, it's difficult sometimes being a mom and dad, but never do we have the right to determine who has human rights and who doesn't. The government doesn't have that right. Only God does. And so I agree with this portion of the Declaration of Independence. Regardless of what you may think about the rest of it, we are created in the image of God and therefore have certain unalienable, unalienable rights given to us at creation, not just at birth. So here's where I'm going with this. When a government or anyone decides who has human rights and who does not, we then play God. That's why the Supreme, that's why people said in 1973 the Supreme Court declared themselves God, because the Supreme Court made a decision who has human rights and who does not. This is the very struggle that America had with slavery. People began to determine who has human rights and who does not. And according to some, they said that those with dark skin do not have human rights like we do. They played God. Slavery eventually may have come to an end. It has taken different forms, however. And one of those forms was Jim Crow laws. And still, those within the black community were denied certain human rights. And during the 1960s, with the civil, civil rights movement and, and trying to move forward and out of the archaic Jim Crow laws and slavery, no sooner did they begin to experience freedom of human rights, but many of us engaged in this horrific, God-playing activity called abortion. We have never been set free from this, this, this desire to be God and who has rights and who does not. So for this reason, that's why many people believe that a true litmus test is something like abortion. Because in there, people decide who has human rights and who does not. But my Bible tells me that all are created in God's image, and therefore are equal and have equal human rights. Now, why am I getting into this? This is not a political sermon, by the way. But what I want us to see is we see something in Nehemiah in which the people in his day began to play God. They began to pray on the poor. I want you to turn there if you're not there yet, Nehemiah chapter 5. I want us to read this whole chapter because we're going to see two, uh, two things within Nehemiah and his heart and his compassion for people who were created equal in God and therefore have equal human rights, but the, their fellow Jews were neglecting those rights. I want to find out how, why. And then what I want us to address this, because again, as we go through Nehemiah, even though he is touching on this concept of rebuilding the wall, as we in the New Covenant look at this book, it's not just about building, building anything or leadership. 
It is about the kingdom of God, and specifically, we learned last week, Jesus being the wall of fire around Jerusalem, that Jesus is the truth. And these truths, there are certain truths concerning salvation that are bedrock and are absolutely important for us. Let me quickly find my place here. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read then Nehemiah chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Let's look at what Nehemiah is facing in his day. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our, our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we, need, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So can you see what the issue is right now? There's a famine apparently on the land. Not only have they had to face the potential physical destruction by their enemies because the wall's broken down, but now there's a famine and they're dealing with one issue after the other. <coughs> and, because of, <clears throat> excuse me, and because of this famine... They have ended up having to mortgage their homes. They have mortgaged land. In essence, they have given these things up as collateral until they get money back to pay these things off. They've mortgaged them. They no longer technically own them. But the problem goes deeper. In verse 4, it says, Still others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And please understand that this tax is not from any kings in Judah or Israel. It's the Persian king's tax. And in order to pay that tax, and generally speaking, most king's taxes were about 10%, that was then given, and for the poor, that that was very difficult. What do they do? Well, this is their problem. This is how they solve it. It says, although we are of the same flesh and blood created in the image of God, that's their point here, even though we're of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. I'm going to come back to that. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Now, church, I want you to underline this. I was very angry. I want you to know that Nehemiah's attitude here is not unbiblical. God created every single one of us to be able to experience and demonstrate anger. The question is not whether you're angry or not, as if anger is sin. The Bible says in your anger, do not sin. Jesus got angry. God gets angry. The question is, what do you do with that anger, and why are you getting angry? Many times in our anger, we are selfish. Many times in our anger, we want to hurt people, and we use our anger as a weapon and not as our ally. Anger is supposed to motivate us, help us bring about justice. So this is how Nehemiah is using this anger. And it says he was very angry. Now, Nehemiah is writing this in the first person. I, I was very angry. I pondered them, that is, these charges, this outcry. I pondered them in my mind, 
and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury interest. You're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back, excuse me, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not say, they could not, excuse me, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. Now this is the interest that they were getting. A hundredth, the hundredth of the money, 1%. Not 10%, not 15%, not 24.99% as many credit cards. Nope, just 1%. Now, I don't know if that was 1% a month or 1% a year. We don't know. But he says, give back the hundredth. Give back that 1% that you're taking from them. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Mm, good response. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe, which was a tradition, an illustration, and said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep his, this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, he was governor, at least his first term. He comes back later, but 12 years is how much he is serving. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Understand, this was an obligation for any statesman, like a governor or a king. They would entertain people. They would welcome them in. It was an opportunity to build relationally, not just the people in the city, but outside the city and even those from other lands. This was expected. But the 150 people, the, it says here, each day one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. That's actually not very much. Now, for us, it might sound like a lot, only because very rarely do we invite 150 people into our home to eat dinner. And very rarely do we have to slaughter cattle and, what is it, 10 sheep and however many, however many poultry? Uh, six sheep, rather. Well, every 10 days... There was an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never, here's his point, I never demanded the food 
allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people. I want us to see something here in the outset. Nehemiah is busy building a wall. We read about this in chapter 4. We've already looked at it. Let me just remind you of one particular verse, verse 23. It says, Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off their clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. I have no idea what their wives said about this, but the truth is they were busy. They didn't even have time, apparently, to take a shower. I guess that was for 52 days. Woo! My goodness. I think they social distanced in that day. <laughs> but the truth is, they were busy. It actually, if you go into the next chapter, chapter 6, we read that they were busy for 52 days, look at there in verse 15. So the wall was, a, was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. But I want us to back up in, earlier in that chapter. I want us to see something here. Sanballat, verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem, he was an Arab, sent me this message to Nehemiah. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. You'll see that Nehemiah's response was, uh, oh, no, you can remember it that way. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and can't go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Now, my point in reading this is, Nehemiah was not taking a break. And the question that people have, who, who, commentators, etc., have when they read this is, how does he even squeeze in chapter 5? And I want to suggest to you that it's very possible that in the busyness of these 52 days, it was after that that, we re that, we've, that the events of chapter 5 took place. And so it's out of chronological order. And it's perfectly fine. Historians, as they're writing like Nehemiah is, they're not obligated to keep everything in chronological order. But my question is, why does Nehemiah, when he's recording this, tuck chapter 5, or the incidences, the events of chapter 5, in between chapters 4 and 6? The busyness of building the wall in the midst of this, even if it was in, chronolo even if it was in chronological order, why is, why is Nehemiah recording this? Why is this so important? And I, he needs to communicate to us that as important as rebuilding this wall was, something was even more important than building the wall. Something was more important than this activity, or at least of equal importance. Now, as we come, now, as we take this truth through the grid into the new covenant, and we're talking about the truths of the gospel that are our wall, and it is so important that we establish these truths, we must come to a particular conclusion. And it's a conclusion that Jesus preached on so much in his ministry, that the principles of the kingdom, everything stands and falls on two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, so that you can love your neighbor as yourself. 
At the end of the age, I want you to consider something. At the end of the age, and you're standing before God, what are you going to give an account to? There are two things the Bible focuses on. Number one, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That has to do with your salvation. That has to do specifically with commandment number one in your relationship with God. The other thing he's going to ask you will be with regard to the grace of God given you. And what did you do with that? Let me tell you what he's not going to ask you. So, Mike Curtis, tell me, what is your millennial view? He's not going to ask me that question. So, Mike, what did you believe about women being pastors? He's not going to ask me that question. So, Mike, do you believe that it is possible for someone in their life to forfeit the benefits of eternal life? Or do you believe in once saved, always saved? He is not going to ask me that question. Those are theological in nature. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that God gives us theological issues to wrestle with in Scripture other than just salvation, if my name is written in the Lamb's book of life or not. I believe that he gives us these things, but I believe this also, that as you study the Word and these truths, they are simply to help you be grounded in truth so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two things that our life will be judged by. Did you truly believe in Jesus Christ? And if you did, did you bear good fruit? Did you bear any fruit? And... For that reason, then, we have numerous parables, and Jesus begins the parable of the talents, for example, the parable of the minas. What did you do with that talent? Did you bury it? Did you act as if it, wasn't e- it didn't even belong to you? Did you do nothing with it? Such a person, Jesus said, would be cast into outer darkness. And trust me, their names would not have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I think it is very possible, excuse me one second here, getting my bearing, there we go. I think it's very possible that we get caught up in the lesser important things in our life. Don't get me wrong, I think it's good and healthy and important to work hard, get a promotion, to bless your family. But if you neglect the foundational things of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that you are able to love your neighbor as yourself, you have wasted your life. How much money did you tuck away for retirement in your 401k or your IRA or whatever other acronyms out there? How did you do in saving all of your money? I believe that's important. Read through Proverbs. It's important. Take a load, get, get a picture of the ant. You sluggard, he says, and he works diligently so that in the winter he has plenty. This is important. But I tell you what, if you give your life to that, and you failed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that you can love your neighbor as yourself, you have failed. Throughout Jesus' ministry, 
These are the two things that he constantly focused on. This is what Nehemiah is focusing on. Guys, we're going to build this wall. It's so important, but we cannot neglect the poor in our land. There is an injustice that is taking place that I need you to bring your attention to. And we need to do this. Because they were falling into the very same problem of denying human rights. Now, what do I mean by this? Please understand that the slavery that he is talking about here is vastly different than the slavery that we have experienced in America. And in this, though, we, we can hear this concept of equality, human rights, etc., when he says in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, although we are out of Although we are of the same flesh and blood, we are of the, excuse me, as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, they are all created in God's image, equal rights, there is no difference, and yet there is partiality. Why? Because if you look, read later, he came to accuse the nobles and the officials. The nobles were ones with money. The officials were the ones with power. Those who had money and those who had power were treating the poor as their business. Yeah, I, I do like that little storyline in A Christmas Carol. If you remember Scrooge sitting down in his the, the top, the, one of the, the rooms of his uh, second floor of his house, and Marley comes in with this preponderous chain, as he calls it, and he sits down, he rebukes Scrooge by saying, you have woven a chain that in my, when I died, it was just as long as mine, and I wonder how long it is now, but you have made people your business. You took advantage of them. You, you have no clue as far as what life is all about. And Nehemiah is, in essence, saying people, nobles, those with money and those with power, you are guilty of this. You are the ones determining who has human rights and who does not. He would take the, they would take those people and treat them like property. I, I own you, was their mentality. I own you. And they would then sell them to the Gentiles who then had the opportunity to mistreat them and treat them like property and deny them human rights. Now, the type of slavery back then was one in which they would put their land or vineyards up for collateral, and if they defaulted on payment, they would lose them, and that happened. And once they lost them, well, they needed more collateral. So who, what, who or what are they going to use for collateral? The man's a little bit old, so I, they would put their children up, much stronger than themselves. They would put their children up for collateral, and they were losing them. And they were between a rock and a hard place. Either we starve to death, or I put my children up for collateral. And many of them got lost into slavery. And then those sold to the Gentiles, denied human rights, treated as property. And Nehemiah, in essence, is saying, stop with 
stop treating the poor and the powerless as if they are your property. Stop treating them. Stop lording it over them. Stop treating them as if you owned them. Stop making them your business. He says here later, what is it, verse verse 8, he says that we bought them. When he says we, he's not saying as a governor using tax money. He's saying as an individual, I and others that have a heart for the poor. We took our money and we bought them back only for them to be lost again and sold to the Gentiles. What you're doing is not right. We need to, they needed to stop making the poor and powerless their business to gain a profit. This is the heart of the kingdom. The heart of the kingdom is treating people as objects of God's redemptive work, or at least potentially so. We give ourselves for people. Whatever we can do in loving them, if they're not saved, to love them so that they can experience this amazing relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what we give our lives to, church. And I realize that many of us are involved in businesses that don't necessarily make that the goal, but your life and what you do, if you're making money, then it is not just to be able to get a promotion or get the new car or get the new house or not getting caught up in the stuff of this world. Because for Nehemiah, sandwiched between chapters 4 and 6 is this deep need amongst the poor and the powerless. These are the ones that we should care for. This is the stuff, then, of the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 40, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brothers, you've done it unto me. That is in the context about those who would inherit the kingdom and those who would not. This is what our life will be weighed by. How are you giving yourself? First, if you're a mom or a dad, how are you giving yourself to your kids? And then beyond that, how am I giving myself to the needs of the poor of those around me? I want us to step back this morning. There's a lot that's going on politically. There's a lot that's going on with, the, with regard to the pandemic. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us are, trying to, are, are finding it very difficult to make ends meet. As the church, our goal then is to have an eternal perspective. And that eternal perspective places God first and then one another second. And our life goal then, our eternal perspective is, how am I giving myself to others? Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers. And by brothers, he doesn't mean fellow Jews. By brothers, he says earlier in in Matthew, those who do the will of God. How are you giving yourself to people? First to the church and then to the world. 
Never become weary, Paul said, in doing good. For at the proper time, at the proper time, you'll reap a harvest. Give. Constantly seek to give. This is the perspective that God, that Jesus wants us to have. One of the things that I so appreciate about this church is that we take it seriously when there are needs among us. When there's a need of a neighbor, we go out of our way. I commend you. There are people in our midst in which they have come upon hard times. And, and you have given financially. You have served over and over. This church, this is the stuff of the kingdom. God is not going to ask you at the end of the age. So tell me, how many souls did you save? He's going to ask, so tell me, how did you love others? How did you speak of me to them? Because we plant others' water, but it is God who gives the increase. He's going to be the one to rescue their hearts, not us. It is not my business how many souls I save. Because number one, I can't. And number two, that is God's responsibility and he is the one that changes hearts, not me. But I give myself to people. We give ourselves to people. We love them. We want to show them Jesus. However we can. Jesus said, you're a light that is set upon a hill. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We then, our lives, as we are moving towards this, not distracted by all of these things that the world shouts to us, our goal is to shine Jesus. This is what distinguishes, Moses said, distinguishes the people of God from those who are not a part of the people of God. They can see God in their midst. Their priorities are right. They're revealing themselves to the grace of God. God does miracles in their midst. And if you're in the need of a miracle today, God wants to do miracles in your life. However he chooses to do that, that is not my job. I will pray, I will ask God to do miracles in your life. But God is the one who sovereignly chooses us. But we are a display of his grace. What are you doing? What are we doing? with that grace that he's pouring into your life. Are you telling others about it? Are you using that grace to be able to bless others? This is the perspective that Jesus is wanting us to have. This is the perspective that Nehemiah does, Nehemiah has. As busy as he was, he gave himself to the needs of the people. As a governor, he didn't use his position for financial gain. He denied himself many of those privileges that the governors before him took because he loved people more than his financial outcome, more than the quality of his life, how much money he had, and how well he ate. I'm going to close in prayer. I want us to consider Nehemiah, a, a man who was strong and firm, and yet such a man of compassion. And when he saw needs, when he saw an injustice, he gave himself to that. So let's step back as we pray. Let's take stock. 
what am I giving my life to? Is it just a bunch of things? Or ultimately, am I giving my life to God and to people? Because those are the things that are eternal. Everything else, it'll burn up. Father, I just ask you that, that you would give us this perspective that Nehemiah had. Thank you for such an amazing man of God. And we just have to confess to you, Lord, it is so easy to get distracted in our day and to focus on everything that the news is bringing out to us and striving so hard to excel at our work. And, and some of these things are good, but Father, they can become a distraction and they can veer us off course. God, please help us as we stay focused to truly fall in love with you and be used by you as that conduit of grace to bless others and help them and minister to them in as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. We want to love you, Lord, and we want to serve you. Help us, God, with that right perspective every day and to be caught up in the things of your kingdom that are eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.